Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I really need to talk to you about where our relationship is going. Lately, I've been feeling very... <laughs> uh, I was just watching a movie on my Google Glass. Grown Ups 2. I was just at the part where the deer urinates on Adam Sandler's face. Uh, <laughs> what were you saying, Greg? Just that I've been doing some thinking about us. And I've come to some hard... Okay, Glass, show me that CNN alert. Hey, get this, they arrested a bunch of people in Ohio who were getting painkillers from their vets and then taking them. And some of them don't even own dogs. They were just calling up and saying, hey, my Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever has a headache. Here's what I'm thinking. We don't really connect the way we used to. And I'm thinking we have to let it go. Oh, there's a song about that. Okay, Glass, who sings that Let It Go song? Attila Mazim, that's who sings it. Do you want to hear it? I'll play it on the Google Glass. And if you hold my finger and press our skulls together. No, I don't want that. I want a real relationship with somebody who's not talking to a piece of plastic all day long. Goodbye. Wow. Okay, Glass. Change my Facebook status to single. Do you feel like doing anything, Google Glass? We can go see that movie, Her. What do you say? Glass? I think it's talking to another glass. Today on The Scramble, find out what happened when writer A.J. Jacobs test-piloted Google's latest toy. And now, okay, Glass, what's the name of the host of this show? Koala McPornface. No, that's actually not my name. Uh, see, this is the problem with Google Glass. Uh, my name is not Koala McPornface. And that could have been the problem for, with John Travolta last night. He might have asked Google Glass right before he went on who was going to be singing the song. You cannot trust all the information you get there. One of our favorite writers is A.J. Jacobs. He's an editor-at-large at Esquire and the author of, it says here, several New York Times best-selling books. But I don't see why New York Times gets to be the only place that you can, you know, I, well, how do they control best-sellingness? <laughs> anyway, uh, including the most recent, uh, well, we did a whole show with him about Drop Dead Healthy, One Man's Humble Quest for Bodily Perfection. We're always interested in what A.J. is up to, and it turns out he's up to a couple of different things. You just heard about Google Glass, and we'll come to that second. I have a hard time saying Google Glass. Um, and that should have been market tested. I should have been a part of a focus group on that. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to talk about another one of his uh, pieces of research. This is about genealogy. Uh, as you probably know, as you go on the web these days, there are four or five different platforms where uh, you can discover all kinds of wonderful things about your, your lineage. And so it turns out that AJ is uh, related to or descended from Gwyneth Paltrow, Quincy Jones, Michael Bloomberg, King David. Um, so AJ, tell us more about this. First of all, what 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 drove you to this? What what made you suddenly uh, get interested in these sites? Well, a few months ago, I got an email from this man in Israel, and he said, "You don't know me, but I'm your twelfth cousin." <laughs> and I don't know what to make of this. First, is you know, is this a scam? Is he going to ask me for money? Send him to his bank account in Nigeria? But uh, and part of me was also like, do I really want uh, an, another twelfth cousin? But he said, I have a family tree with 80,000 of your relatives. And 
And I was just taken aback. I mean, that's amazing. I'm connected to 80,000 people. So I immersed myself in this world of genealogy, and I realized this field, which I'd always thought was quite staid, is going through this fascinating revolution. And it's partly because of DNA testing and partly because of the Internet. And you have these sites like genie.com and Wikitree, where you collaborate with others and you merge your family tree with another person's family tree. So you get these mega monster trees with thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And on a site called Genie, I'm on what's called the World Family Tree, which has, you ready, 75 million people on it. So if you believe the research, and we can talk about the accuracy, I am distant cousins with 75 million people, including old friends from camp. Albert Einstein is a mere 18 steps away. So this idea of the family of humankind, that cliche, it's not a cliche anymore. So I was I was taken by this, and I decided that's my next book. And at the end, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to hold a reunion, the biggest family reunion ever with thousands of my family members? Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow can bring her vegan turkey casserole. <laughs> and uh, and so that's what I'm planning for 2015. And you're invited, Colin. Yeah, I'm going to figure out how we're, we're related because we are. I hate it when Gwyneth uh, starts fighting with Uncle Quincy, though. <laughs> I, I direct so many family gatherings. <laughs> well, you know, isn't this sort of a thing where if you know everything, you know nothing, right? I mean, if you know about 75 million of your relatives, you basically don't know anything because knowledge needs to be more specific than that to be useful. Well, here are a couple of things that I find so compelling about it. I mean, first of all, that does have scientific value. So this world family tree is already being studied. There's a group of scientists at MIT who are looking at it to see how inheritance, disease inheritance works and human migration worked. And also, on a personal level, it just brings history alive in a way I'd never seen. Like, you know, the fact that I'm 18 steps removed from Albert Einstein, you know, I can tell my kids that. And now it's not like some old dead white guy. It's like Uncle Albert. And they're engaged. They want to know about him. And then the final point is just uh, this is a little idealistic and quixotic, I realize. But I find that if you know you're distantly related to someone, uh, even if it's like 11th cousins, you can you might treat them more kindly. And uh, that whole idea of that we're all one big family, now it's concrete. And, and that might help make the world just a little more tolerant. You know, I, I can see some other real pluses, including it sort of could be the end of snobbery. Like it turns out whose relatives didn't come over on the Mayflower. Everybody's exactly. relatives came over on the Mayflower. I know. It's that. It's totally democratizing. It's quite amazing. I mean, genealogy actually in the very right after the American Revolution was looked down upon because it was seen as a snobby pursuit. But now that every, you know, my my 10 year old did a, a project on the Mayflower and I was able to trace us back to the Mayflower. You know, I my great grandfather was a Jew in the shtetl in Poland. But, you know, we married in to some wasps and go right back to the Mayflower. So totally agree. It's democratizing. I'll tell you just a very quick story about this, uh, which is my mother could be really quite insufferable during her lifetime about her, her you know, sort of New England ancestry and her, her Mayflower relatives. And at one point, 
she was um, taking care of my son when he was four years old, and uh, so he was there with his his grandparents, whom he addressed by their first names, Barbara and Bob. And so I, I didn't know about any of this, but at some point during the day, somebody had given him a toy gorilla, and this had sparked a whole conversation, I guess. Uh, and so as I was putting him to bed that night, he suddenly looked at me and he said, "You know, Bob, that's his grandfather. You know, Bob comes from monkeys, um, and I come from monkeys." But Barbara doesn't come from monkeys. And I said, really, who does Barbara come from? And he said, pilgrims. Um, so anyway. It, they, they bypassed evolution. That yeah, is interesting. Absolutely. They just, they, they just uh, did a quantum leap somehow. Yeah, fully formed. So, I mean, I guess the, uh, another piece of bad news is that almost every, anybody who's ever, who has a job right now that they got from somebody may be guilty of nepotism, right? It is true. I mean, I'm thinking that this could help with, uh, you know, diffuse nepotism because now you have to hire your family. You know that old <laughs> saying, you can't choose your you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. Well, now you can choose your relatives because you got thousands of them. So just focus on the ones you like and ignore the annoying ones. We should just uh, say that if you are listening to the show and your sort of your heart is warmed by the notion that AJ may be your relative, the family reunion the it will be at uh, the New York Hall of Science in Queens uh, on the grounds of the 1939 and 1964 World's Fair. Uh, and uh, I don't know, is, there, is everybody theoretically invited, or are we going to narrow this down a little bit? Well, no, all 7 billion members of the human family are invited. Uh, but if you can find a link to me, which which I think we can all find, is you get a bracelet and we'll be part of this record-breaking family photo. And Morgan Spurlock, the documentary maker who yeah. did Super Size Me, he's making a documentary. So if I could just plug to how people can get to me, just email me or go to my website, AJ. Uh, ajjacobs.com or email me at aj at ajjacobs.com and just tell me your grandparents' names and I will try to track down how we're related so that you can come. No, are, are, there are a bunch of different websites. There's ancestry.com. There's this genie that you're talking about. In your article, you, you name a bunch of them. Are they all created equally? Do you put a little bit more weight uh, on one than the other? Uh, well, they're all, they all, all are very good. Uh, the ones that I use most are Genie, which is a part of my heritage, so I use that as well. And also there's one called Wicketry. And for me, I like these because they are really the crowdsourced ones where, you know, if you put up your family tree and have the name, say, Henry Sussman, then it searches the Internet and finds that if there's another family tree with the name Henry Sussman, is this the same Henry Sussman? And if it is, you can fuse your trees. And that's how you go from having like a family tree of 100 to a family tree of 100,000. Could we just backtrack to something you just said a few seconds ago? Did you say that genie was part of your heritage? I mean, are you like related to genies? Is that what you're saying to me? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I am. I'm proud. I am actually cousins with the founder of Genie. You should be but, getting uh, so much money from that Aladdin movie. <laughs> I, MyHeritage.com is a uh, is one of the big sites. Oh, so that's Genie is part of MyHeritage.com. I should have uh, made that clear. I completely misunderstood syntactically. Now it makes eminent sense. Um, all right. So, and then another thing. One of the pieces of news that your article contained for me is so years and years ago um, for a radio show. Um, a geneticist and I uh, spat into test tubes and sent them away to 23andMe uh, um, and got all kinds of information about ourselves, some of it genealogical, some of it, you know, 
medical, which ones of us were walking time bombs, that kind of thing. And <laughs> I didn't realize, I mean, I had to, because of your article, I then jumped on Google and found out more about it, that, that they don't do the medical stuff anymore. All they do now is just look at your, your spit and tell you basically some, some family tree stuff about yourself, right? That's right. Yeah, the FDA was actually looking into their health claims, so they have the health part on, on hold, but their ancestry part uh, is still going strong. And then what the wild thing for me is that they will they you, you do your little spit test and then they'll send you all of the people who share enough DNA that are your cousins. And for me, it was a little twist because I had my wife take the test. And guess what? My wife and I are cousins. It, <laughs> it did say it did say distant cousins. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, I but uh, but still my wife was uh, was taken aback. Um, I, I found with that one, first of all, did you find it was difficult to come up with enough spit? It took me like a really long time to fill up the test tube. I did too. Yeah. It yeah, took it was, me like half like a, an hour. Was, I had yeah. to turn on the TV. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it turns out you don't have anywhere near as much spit as they want you to have. Um, and, and they won't count foam, you know, the whole thing is just very strict. Um, I found that, I don't know if they've sort of sharpened this up a little bit and I get updates from them and I never look at them, but you know, like initially I sort of did want to learn from them that I was a much more mixed kind of, you know, person than I, than, than I had been told by my parents. So that I wanted to find out that I had African-American ancestry and all kinds of other cool stuff. And just was, it was, no, it was just a bunch of people farting around in the British and Isles and, you know, a bunch of Celts, basically. I mean, they couldn't come up with anything cool for me. I don't know. Did, did I you? I am sorry to hear that. <laughs> I, I mo you know, I am of Ashkenazi Jew ancestry, so it was mostly that. But I did have a little Scandinavian, which was exciting, especially in this winter. I thought it was cool to have, like, you know, that helped me weather the storm. Uh, but, you know, if you go far back enough, you do have, you know, we all come from Africa. So uh, so you have that in you. Yeah. They didn't do that for me. They didn't show me that. Well, I can't, we can't wait for that. So that's a book that's in the offing somehow? Yeah. the Well, the actual family reunion will take place in 2015. Mm -hmm. But I am, uh, I, and then the book will come out after that. And and one of my marketing plans is that I'm going to acknowledge every member of my family. So I'll have in tiny two-point font an acknowledgment section that goes on for like 100 pages. And then everyone in the acknowledgments will buy it because they're in the book. Uh, and that's how I'll sell. But who knows if that'll happen. All right. Well, I don't want to be the person to tell you how to run your career. And no one should ever listen to me <laughs> anyway for, for career advice. But you should have the book. If, it's, if you've got 7 billion people invited to a family reunion, there should be books waiting there in the New York Hall of Science for them to buy. I know. I know. It's hard but i gotta make that the finale i mean that's sort of one of the uh that's my goal all right um we want to just uh, switch gears and talk about another piece that you did recently this one is for for esquire you did try out the the new google glass this is basically a wearable internet that sits there on your face uh you used it for lots of different things from reading books to i guess you wouldn't necessarily say cheating at poker um, I would say it. I think that's a fair word. <laughs> okay. So explain that, right? You're not a great poker player. You invited a few friends over to play poker. And right. what they didn't know was you were streaming the poker game back to your cousin, who you discovered on Genie, probably. Um, your cousin, who really is a really good <laughs> poker player, right? Exactly. It wasn't, the guy in way, it wasn't the guy in Israel, though, right? It was not the guy in Israel. This was an actual first cousin. Uh, and by the way, I loved your uh, your your radio play. Uh, uh, very nice. So, yeah. Yes, I am. One of the things I use, I'm a terrible poker player, but with the glass, uh, you can live stream it. So 
a person on a computer miles away can see exactly what you're seeing. So he could see uh, the faces of my opponents. I invited some friends over to my house to play poker. He could see my cards. I would hold up my cards. And they didn't know that I was doing this. Uh, I just told them I had it on for an article. I was, you know, looking at emails occasionally. And he would, I could see him in my little tiny Google Glass screen, and he would tell me what to do. He would hold up a sign that says, bet $10, or fold, or laugh maniacally, and it actually worked. I won $200. I did give it back to my friends, because I thought, you know, there's, there's a limit. Uh, uh, but uh, it was, uh, it actually worked. So casinos have actually banned Google Glass, because it, the... Opportunities for cheating are are too tempting. We should say that Google Glass. This is something that you were you were what I think what was called an explorer or something like that. It's a it's a you were basically one of the people road testing this thing uh, before it becomes commonly available. Right, as you mentioned, it's sort of a computer, a little uh, iPhone for your face. So it it, it goes on your head uh, like a glass, but it's got a little screen in the corner, and it'll be released sometime later this year, but I got an early look at it because uh, I was writing an article about it, and it was very interesting. I mean, the reactions are, it's a very polarizing <laughs> little gadget. You either love it or hate it. You know, it's like it's like Hillary Clinton or cilantro. It's uh, Some people are just totally offended. Yeah, but I mean, others you, love it. You describe being at a barbecue and this woman realizing suddenly what you're wearing just sort of launches into you, uh, laces into you with a with a tirade about basically this is what, this is sort of an extension of people looking at their phones and not ex- not paying any attention to the world around them. That's it, she said, you know, the invasion of privacy and the failure to embrace real life and the evils of distraction, blah, blah, blah. And and she actually said, you know, that is the, the Google Glass is the most annoying thing in the world. And I said, I disagree. And I Googled with the Google Glass, you can talk to it and get on the Internet. So I said, OK, Glass, what is the most annoying thing in the world? And I got a list of things that were annoying from some newspaper article. And it was, you know, noisy eaters and rude clerks. Uh, and I told her that that did not convince her. That probably made her more annoyed. Yeah, no, I would so never that, do, don't never do that again. If someone tells you Google Glass is the most <laughs> annoying thing in the world, don't look up most annoying things in the world on your Google Glass and then tell them because one of those people will turn out to be armed. Um, there you go. I kind of knew I was going, I was, uh, I was pushing it. Well, you know, my one serious question about this, and I mean, it's something that you deal, do deal with in the piece, is that, I mean, I'm already terrified that some idiot who's texting while driving is going to you know, knock me off my bicycle someday or something like that. And then you have this where people people can be driving in their cars and I guess theoretically like watching porn or something. You know? <laughs> I just I don't feel safe somehow. I don't I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, there was they should they should have to turn off in certain situations. Well, it is a definitely an issue. One interestingly, Google argues the opposite. It says that the this device will make people less distracted because instead of having to look down at your phone every minute, the emails just float into your view so you can be looking straight ahead. Uh, but I find it all depends how you use it. You know, if you enable it so that you're getting emails, Twitter, Facebook, CNN, sports cars, you're never going to get anything done. And you're going to be walking into parking signs. And if you're driving, you're going to be going over the cliff. You're going to be saying to Glass, OK, Glass, where's the nearest hospital? Because I just <laughs> broke my ribs. Uh, but if you would use it judiciously and just... Uh, 
enable just one thing every you know a couple hours then yes it can actually help you stop looking at your iPhone all the time. Well, the other thing that you make clear is, I mean, and anybody who has any kind of voice recognition on any device knows this. I mean, if you've got voice recognition just to send texts uh, on your existing phone, you know, for me, I spend so much time correcting the thing, you know, and going back because it, it wrote the wrong thing. And now I've got to move my move a little thing over my thumb and change it. It takes me about 45 minutes <laughs> to send one text. And and so anything I mean, voice recognition is amazing. And it's, it's so far ahead of where we ever dreamed it would be maybe 10 years ago. But it's so far from perfect, too. And you I mean, the way this thing works is you ask it questions, right? Right. It's mostly voice controlled. And yes, there was. I spent quite a bit of time arguing with it. I found you have to talk. To, I'm often a mumbler. So I uh, I found you have to talk to it very enthusiastically, like you're a cruise director or uh, like, you know, a morning, wacky morning AM uh, zoo radio host. So uh, so that can be a little trying on the nerves, but uh, but overall, I am very impressed with its uh, with its voice recognition feature. The um, the one thing that I want from Google Glass, and I don't think it's there yet, is and it would be so important to me that I would spend almost any amount of money for it is what I call the who the hell are you feature. You know, people oh, come up yeah. to you and, and talk to you. I was at a big party last night. This happened several times. People clearly know who I am. I don't know who they are. You know, there's all kinds of facial recognition software these days. So, but Google Glass, you, you can't do that yet, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that would be quite amazing. And you could say, oh, uh, how's your daughter? You know, what, what your birthday was last week. You could get all their information, which is go both great and totally terrifying. And some people are, are quite alarmed by the invasion of privacy. And Google is very sensitive about this. They do not want the facial recognition feature because they fear a huge backlash. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think it's hard to stop technology. So there are going to be people who hack the system and are going to install the facial recognition so that you'll be able to go up to. You can even go up to a stranger and, and pretend you know them and say, oh, well, you know. You can be Sherlock Holmes, basically. You, you can say, I can see that you live in Crimea for a while. And you, you've, <laughs> exactly. had a, you've had foot surgery within the last two years. It is going to make it. Well, I'll tell you, one of the experiments I did was I'm married. I've been married for a long time, but I thought it would be interesting to live vicariously as a single guy. So I lent the glass to a, a young single man in his 20s, and I stayed at home and watched what he did at a at a bar. So I was his Cyrano. I could sort of whisper in his ear what to do, who to go up to. I could see what he saw and what women to approach. And, you know, he asked one woman... Uh, uh, what was her favorite book? And she said, a tree grows in Brooklyn. So I Googled a tree grows in Brooklyn quotations and fed him one. And uh, actually, <laughs> she she had no idea what the quotation was. So it was a complete bust. But it was <laughs> it was a fun experiment. Or or it would be possible maybe you were, he was revealing the fact that she had never read that book. She just... <laughs> That's true. Well, I can tell you it was not, you know, uh, I do not have game, as they say. I've been married for 13 years. So any any possibility that this was going to end with some intimacy was, uh, was it was a very low chance and it never happened. But that, you know, there, the, it almost gets back to the woman at the barbecue. I mean, it, it almost seems as though she might be right that 
I mean, maybe not quite at the level of, of irritation that she was manifesting towards you, but that, you know, Google Glass, it really does create a world in which these other possibilities exist, that you might be talking to somebody in a very sort of real-time Cyrano situation. You're talking, you think you're talking to person X, but in fact, person Y is feeding them stuff over the glass. I mean, that's probably worse than anything that the lady at the barbecue could have ever dreamt up. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be a strange world. I mean, there are things that are going to be wonderful about wearable technology. And I'm not sure whether Google Glass is going to take off, but I do think something like it eventually will. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very strange world. Uh, we're going to have much less privacy. Uh, if uh, you, It's going to be harder to do... On the, on the good side, it's going to be harder to mug someone because everyone will be filming themselves all the time. Uh, on the other hand, if you do something dumb, that's going to be on video forever. And, uh, you know, so we're going to have to be a lot more uh, sympathetic to people's uh, negative sides and realize we all make mistakes. But, yeah, I would say privacy if you didn't, if you thought it was already in danger, you, you know you haven't seen anything yet. It sort of does uh, lend new meaning to the cartoon trope of our childhoods. You know, you wouldn't punch a guy with glasses. Well, you wouldn't punch a guy with glasses <laughs> now because when the lawsuit comes around, he'll have a record of it. Um, exactly. And I think a, a week ago, I saw that someone in San Francisco, uh, some that that she was uh, physically, someone took the glasses off of her, but they had video of it because the. The the glass was recording. AJ Jacobs, it's great to talk to you. We can't wait for the family reunion. Uh, I'll bring potato salad. Uh, and uh, <laughs> meanwhile, people should pick up Drop Dead Healthy, one man's humble quest for bodily perfection. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, cousin Colin. <laughs> all right, bye, cousin. I see myself wearing Google glasses just like the boss You admit it. Yes. Freely. And you know why. I got this from Mrs. Shaw. Mrs. Zepps won't even grab me no soap to clean with. I stink so much I make myself gag. Five hundred pounds of cotton. Day in, day out. More than any man here. And for that I will be clean. That's all I ask. This here, what I went to Charles for. We, you know, that's, of course, Lupita Nyong'o uh, in 12 Years a Slave. You know, we all know that Yale School of Drama is a remarkable place. It has produced remarkable people, uh, people that you were seeing last night on television besides her, uh, people like Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver. Um, uh, but this was a remarkable story. I think uh, in my own memory, I would have to go back to the early 1980s when David Allen Greer was uh, grabbed like right after graduating from Yale School of Drama uh, and hopped into the lead role uh, of Jackie Robinson in a musical called The First, which unfortunately ran 37 performances. But still, to go right out of the Yale School of Drama and get a lead role on Broadway in a musical written by Martin Charnin was pretty cool. Uh, this is even cooler. She's uh, She won an Oscar last night. So uh, we wanted to know a little bit about sort of... Um, uh, what she was like as a classmate. And we're talking to Michael Place right now. He was a class, classmate of Lupita Nyong'o at the Yale School of Drama. Um, first of all, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And tell us where you're calling from and, and what you're up to these days, first of all. Well, well, I'm in Bushwick right now with another classmate of mine. We're working on our taxes, <laughs> um, <laughs> like you do at this time of year. And, uh, and you know, we're, most of us are in New York right now, and we're uh, most of us are with agencies, and we're auditioning and booking work in town and out of town and, uh, you know, getting into the freelance hustle of life after grad school. Did you gather last night to watch the Oscars? We did. There were eight of us together last night, and then there are two of us in Los Angeles right now who we had Skyping in the entire time, and another classmate in Cincinnati doing a play, and so she was on an iPad Skyping in. So it was really fun, and it's really great to be together. We felt the togetherness of it very strongly last night. And when you use the word we, I want to play a little clip from her acceptance speech because uh, there's a mystery which I think that you can, you can help us unravel. Sure so, thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so let's hear that clip right now. I want to thank my family uh, for your training <laughs> and the Yale School of Drama as well for your training. Uh, my friends, the Wilsons, this one's for you. So when she said that, I gather uh, wherever it was that you guys were gathered around the television set, there was probably quite a bit of cheering. <laughs> there was. Yeah, it was a really special moment for us. You know, the Wilsons is uh, a name, a self-given name for our class. Uh, based on a really silly moment when one classmate, Seamus Mulcahy, was uh, saluting and toasting another classmate for a great work on an opening night, uh, Brian Wiles. And instead of calling him Brian Wiles in the toast in front of a bar full of people, he called him Brian Wilson, which, of course, is a beach boy. Yes. Um, <laughs> so those, you know, the room erupted in the laughter, and then after that, the 15 of us all adopted the last name. You know, toasting each other as Jillian Wilson and Hallie Wilson and Bill Wilson <laughs> and things like that. And so it just kind of stuck. Um, how, I mean, first of all, watching the performance in the movie 12 Years a Slave, I mean, she's just sort of jaw-droppingly good and vivid and I mean, and un unforgettable. Um, I'm sure for all of you it was maybe less of a surprise. I mean, did she, she were, the, were the kinds of chops that she exhibited at Yale School of Drama, you know, was it a sort of a natural step to what you see up there on the screen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we saw a lot of excellent work from all the years of actors um, at Yale at the time, you know. Uh, Ron Van Loo, who was chair at the time, who's it's now Walton Wilson, they both select, you know, just extraordinary people. And the, the combination of, of people that they bring together at that school is just really exceptional, and anyone is lucky to be around that for any given amount of time. But, you know, with Lupita, I think, you know, we saw her do um, Kate and Taming of the Shrew, and it was a particularly um, aggressive production that really put the pressure on the role of Kate. And... We saw that fight in that performance, absolutely. But I think uh, the role of Patsy just provided an opportunity beyond anything that, you know, she's been allowed to try before. So, you know, it's kind of like I've been talking about, like, the Olympics in, in, um, in regards to this, where it's like, you know, where you have the difficulty rating of, of gymnastics routine, you know, this is a 9.9 difficulty, allows you the opportunity to score big. And I think the difficulty of this, acting opportunity is a 9.9 .9. you know it's it's the deepest circumstances the deepest loss the deepest experiences and she is very well suited to go there and she did 
You know, it may be a difficult thing to quantify or explain to an outsider, but this really is a pretty remarkable drama program with this incredible history and these, you know, productions that have been staged there with performers like Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver, who I think were both in a version of Aristophanes, The Frogs that was in the Yale Swimming yeah. Pool or something. I mean, this this is a, a program that has a lot of legend built up around it, but is there a way that you can just say anything specific about the pedagogy there, about what, what it is you learn there that seems to result in these these you know, trips to the stratosphere as an actor? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely not a single answer, I think. But, you know, Ron Van Loo, who was the chair again, he um, and he was at NYU for 30 years before coming to Yale, and he's been training actors for a very long time, and he has trained a number of, of actors of note. And, you know, he would say uh, frequently that a program is made up of who you invite to learn and who you invite to teach. So I think the success of the program and the continued success is really a testament to the leadership of James Bundy and Ron Van Loo and the faculty, the amazing faculty that Ron puts together, um, that Walton is now continuing as the new chair. Um, and then also just the kind of personalities that Ron sought out. Um, I think that there's a generosity in everybody at that school, um, and there's a ambition and there's talent. And I think, you know, Lupita is the perfect spokesperson for the kind, uh, the epitome of what that program is looking for, you know. The the thing that's been most beautiful about watching her success is that it's her. It's, you know, she's not, like, putting something on to meet the kind of scale of, of what she's engaging with now. She is being herself in, in an expansive and grand circumstance, and it's it's pretty beautiful to watch. It, I mean, it sort of culminated last night with the Oscar, but, I mean, it really has been going on for a while now, and every magazine that arrives on my at my house seems to have her on the cover of it. Um, and, yeah. And yet, I mean, so she's really, she's become turned into kind of a fashion it girl in addition to everything else, and watching her be interviewed by Ellen DeGeneres on the Ellen DeGeneres show. Um, but, but, you know, and obviously it's difficult to judge somebody like this from a distance, but she seems remarkably unaffected by it all, unaffected in maybe both terms, uh, not, not yeah. changed by it, and then not an affected kind of person it's it's very interesting i mean she's a, a tremendously silly and joyous person um and i hope that's coming through to the public because we definitely see that in her uh, throughout all of this but you know i think something that separates lupita too is that she was raised um in a family in nairobi uh that was already in the spotlight you know her dad was a politician uh, her siblings were quite successful and, and um she had some success on an mtv show sugar where she played the lead in Nairobi, and then moved on to um, direct and produce some there. So I think the spotlight for her is a little different. I think she's just more comfortable with this kind of political landscape um, that she she grew up in. Um, and so I think that that allowed her to not be intimidated by it or to, like, place it above herself, but rather just see it as an opportunity to, you know, reach out. And, and the things that she's been saying in some of these um, public opportunities has been really moving and really um, meaningful on a social level as well, and um, and so that's just very exciting to see her take the you know to prioritize the right things in this situation, even though you know there is like this incredible um, attention paid to her fashion. Like it's definitely that's one side of the coin, and the other side is just the emotional depth and the authenticity that she's leading with. When you say the things that she's been saying and the right kinds of things, uh, give an example of what you mean. Uh, well, uh, Jill and I, who are, you know, we're doing our taxes right now, we just watched a video. I, I forget exactly where she was speaking, but she uh, read a letter that a fan wrote to her about how she was prepared to use 
a, a skin lightening cream because she wanted to feel more beautiful and that uh, Lupita's immediate success as a dark-skinned African woman gave her the courage to find the beauty within herself. Mm. You know, so Lupita spoke at length about this, um, and and it was quite quite moving. And of course, that is the the depth of, you know, at the at the center of the fashion world should be a priority on inner beauty and accepting who you are and loving who you are. And so she's becoming a spokesperson for that as well throughout all of this. Uh, which is really incredible. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's uh, that's very significant. And and yeah. it does also appear that despite all the seriousness and the overwhelmingness of it, um, I, I my favorite not- moment of last night was when Pharrell Williams was performing Happy and and got down off the stage and walked over to members of the audience. So the first person he approached was her, and just sort of the way that she rose kind of happily and effortlessly out of her seat and started dancing with him, uh, it suggests that she's not she's not forgetting to enjoy this incredible ride she's having. Yeah, certainly. All, all right. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. No, no. I was just going to say that you know, like that joy is is the woman we know mm-hmm. and. Uh, she was a light in our classroom and, and throughout all of the experiences that we shared at Yale. And it's it's absolutely appropriate and fitting that she now has the opportunity to share that light with the rest of the country and the world. So, Michael Place, uh, we can't wait to see uh, you on Broadway or on the big screen very, very soon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think it's your turn next, but it's great to talk to you now. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Take All right. Care. We've been talking to Michael Place. He was a Yale School of Drama classmate of Lupita Nyong'o, who, of course, won the Best Supporting Actress Award last night. When we come back, we'll finish up this show with a conversation about uh, political scandals in Connecticut and the possibility that they may be all more interrelated than we had thought. I got the Warby Parker Google Glass. They sent me five types of information, and I'm going with paranoia and whiskey tortoiseshell. Boom. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Skylar Magnoli. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the introduction. Katie Tularski is our executive producer, and the part of Bill Curry was played by John Travolta. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff knitting tiny little clothes for Matthew McConaughey to put on his Oscar, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Betsy and me have produced a way excellent show about grammar. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, tomorrow's show, it'll be National Grammar Day. Uh, We'll have some grammar experts, and we'll talk a little bit about sort of the world of grammar peeves, and in particular sort of the way that now, because of digital media, sort of social media, People who are unhappy with one another's grammar can kind of challenge one another about it on Twitter uh, uh, and create a whole new climate of grammar snobbery and aggression, which we intend to foster and uh, pour gasoline as opposed to water upon. Uh, All right. So um, last segment of the day, we're going to talk to Neil Victor. He's a reporter for the Hearst newspapers here in Connecticut, which is a whole bunch of different newspapers. Uh, And he wrote over the weekend in in an article which uh, got a lot of attention from those of us who've been covering some of these scandals, uh, an article suggesting that, well, first of all, let me just set the stage. Uh, There's a a grand jury investigation going on right now uh, into John Rowland, our former governor, suggesting that he was um, involved 
involved in a fifth con- fifth congressional district primary uh, in a in a way that uh, he had not declared that he was actually receiving uh, through a different channel money to be a political operative for a, a candidate, Lisa Wilson Foley. So that's sort of one story. There's another story that broke more recently about George Gallo, a former John Rowland campaign manager uh, who seems to be have been involved. We don't really know the entire fact pattern of it, but the FBI. Uh, is at the state capitol investigating the possibility that somehow or other uh, somebody at the state capitol may have been steering various kinds of political spending. I'm trying to do this off the top of my head, and it's complicated. Uh, various kinds of political spending to um, certain direct mail firms, uh, and and that uh, this may have been done in an inappropriate way. That's sort of the way things look without us really knowing all of the details about it, but it occasioned uh, George Gallo, the former rolling campaign manager, uh, leaving his job and as uh, chief of staff for the House minority. Um, and, and then going back two years to that same 5th Congressional District, there was a yet another investigation that uh, that found that certain people were involved in, in, in uh, giving campaign contributions to Chris Donovan, the former Speaker of the House who was running, uh, seeking the Democratic nomination uh, to run for Congress in the 5th District, uh, and that those people may have thought, or they did think, that they could use those campaign contributions to influence legislation having to do with roll-your-own tobacco. Okay, that's as far as I'm willing to go about that. Anyway, so three really complicated political stories, all of them scandals, all of them federal investigations of some kind. But Neil Vigdor, we didn't really necessarily think until perhaps this weekend that they were all interrelated. But based on your reporting, you're, you're telling us Justice Department sources are telling you, yeah, they kind of all do uh, have a, a common headwater. Yes. Good, good afternoon, Colin. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, from what I, from what I've been told is, if you think of these various investigations, uh, the uh, pay-to-play with uh, Donovan's associates and the uh, tobacco shops, and uh, George Gallo with uh, his direct mail uh, steering of business to a Florida company, and then uh, Roland's uh, relationship with uh, Lisa Wilson Foley and her husband Brian. Uh, if you think about it, uh, the way that it's been told to me is that they are kind of concentric circles, if you will, and that uh, the f- investigators uh, went into Waterbury about two, three years ago, uh, hearing uh, a lot of chatter about uh, cor- public corruption and uh, political corruption, uh, both uh, municipally and at the state level. And uh, so that they basically started up this FBI dragnet and uh, kind of the jumping off point uh, was the whole uh, uh, scandal that uh, basically sank uh, Chris Donovan's uh, congressional uh, candidacy. And uh, that uh, as investigators started to dig deeper, uh, that they were asking questions in terms of uh, relationships between people and how is this person, uh, you know, what was the relationship between X and Y, uh, that that kind of uh, led them uh, to uh, what they see as kind of the big fish in John Rowland, our former governor, and, uh, you know, that there is some sentiment in the law enforcement community that perhaps uh, the former governor, uh, when he served 10 months for corruption after his resignation, uh, that that, uh, you know, didn't really do it for, uh, you know, a lot of people in the FBI and law enforcement community. And so this kind of presents to them a second bite at the apple. Um, you're also saying, based once again on, on sources, that, that uh, Governor Rowland has already been offered 
um, a guilty a guilty plea, some kind of plea deal anyway, which which he rejected, right? Right. My my understanding, uh, I have been told that uh, Governor Rowland about a week and a half ago or so uh, was offered uh, a, a plea deal that he turned down. Uh, I've I've heard from various some people have put out uh, you know 18 month uh, sentence uh, out there. I have not heard that specifically, but what I did hear specifically is that uh, he would plead guilty to two misdemeanors. Uh, my source on that uh, was not familiar with the exact nature of the misdemeanor charges, but uh, I am told that uh, he he turned that down, and so now it's kind of open season uh, for the Justice Department and the FBI. The um, now another source also told you that um, that particular investigation, the investigation into John Rowland, is winding towards an indictment right now, right? That 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 is correct. Uh, that's what I, that's what I have been told, and that uh, you know one source characterized it as imminent. Uh, other sources said uh, you know something is going to break soon. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't venture to guess whether that's going to go down this week or uh, give a specific date, but uh, I, I am told uh, that uh, kind of uh, the floor is kind of coming out from under him. So, um, you know, judging from the reporting that you're doing uh, and what these sources are telling you, I mean, kind of a picture emerges, as, as you say, uh, the idea that a few years ago they went into Waterbury to investigate Claim X. We probably will never know exactly what started this whole thing, but but it cascaded into the the, the investigation into the Chris Donovan campaign, which led to a whole series uh, of convictions and guilty pleas, uh, although not uh, of Chris Donovan, who was who was cleared. Uh, and then you've got the Roland investigation, the investigation into this um, the sort of money that w- would have changed hands, maybe in connection with his work on on a primary. You've got this other uh, very new set of um, allegations involving George Gallo and the fact that uh, FBI investigators are up there working at the Capitol right now, looking at records uh, connected to him and, and apparently to other people. It almost sort of sets up a scenario where <laughs> we're going to live under permanent federal investigation. I mean, do, do you get a sense that uh, in talking to these sources that this could just sort of go on and on? Uh, I I have uh, heard that, you know, certainly, uh, you know, it's detrimental to, uh, you know, Connecticut's uh, trying to kind of break from that reputation of corruptacut. And we we did uh, hear back from the uh, the lawyer for uh, Chris Donovan. Uh, uh, we had uh, you know kind of questions came up uh, in January 31st. Uh, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, sent a letter uh, to Donovan saying that uh, it had closed its investigation uh, with respect to the uh, tobacco uh, pay to play and that he was not being charged. And uh, for quite some time, uh, it's been kind of generally known that Donovan was going to be in the clear. But what kind of has raised questions is him getting this letter. And, uh, you know, it's led to a bunch of people uh, talking about how he may have gotten some kind of deal to get that letter. Uh, Generally, uh, the feds don't give you like a a teacher's note or a principal's letter uh, would be the equivalent uh, that you're, you know, getting off. Uh, so uh, his lawyer has uh, adamantly uh, denied that uh, he, uh, you know, coughed up any information to investigators while they were uh, looking at his associates. Yeah, I mean, letters like that are not unprecedented. The, the people do get them. Um... And and I don't want reading the article the first, the first time around. That was sort of my sense too. That that 
I've I've seen people get letters like that. I haven't really ever been under the impression that they got them by trading information to get them. That in order to get them, basically, the the feds have to believe that in fact you didn't do the thing that they were investigating you for, and that you have a legitimate claim to some kind of exoneration, so that you can go on and seek future employment and not be forever tainted by this. But I'm not sure how much swapping information about some other case would would really help your cause. And then uh, with respect to George Gallo. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I am told uh, that uh, even he is kind of at a loss in terms of uh, what he has done that's illegal uh, with respect to steering uh, business to uh, the same uh, direct mail company in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, it, I, did a, I did a story uh, four years ago about how uh, some Republicans uh, were upset that uh, – candidates were using their citizens' election fund money uh, and spending it at out-of-state vendors, uh, this being the prime example of one. And when I interviewed Gallo at the time, uh, he had said that, uh, you know, that firm kind of emerged through a uh, an informal bidding process and that their rates were cheaper than what Connecticut companies were offering. And uh, while, while he wasn't forcing uh, candidates to use that firm, Certainly, if they came to him and asked for a recommendation, uh, that firm was the one that he was recommending. Uh, you know, is it, is it illegal because it uh, used the citizens' election fund money, or that he's a state employee as the uh, or was as the uh, chief of staff for the House GOP? Those are kind of questions that there's still kind of mystery out there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it. First of all, that's standard operating practice to have one firm that you know some political party or any kind of organized political effort. They'll try to use one firm for a whole bunch of reasons that actually sort of make sense. Right. It becomes illegal if you're getting. Getting what we sometimes call a kickback, or if you're getting a finder's fee, a finder's fee, some kind of cut of the action, and and I suppose specifically with that that uh, clean elections pro or citizens election program money, which is even you know more heavily regulated because in fact it is taxpayer money. Uh, I suppose if you were you know if somebody's getting a piece of the action, that might even be a bigger problem. Neil, and actually, from from what I've been told, uh, finder's fees or commissions uh, are are somewhat uh, customary uh, you know in the political landscape nationally in terms of. Uh, advertising and direct mail business. Uh, so, uh, and uh, you know, is it a situation where he did not report uh, income that he earned? Uh, but then the IRS would be involved, and they don't seem to be. All right, Neil Vigdor, this uh, story will be followed by you and other reporters. Very interesting weekend story. Thanks for joining us. Now it's the end of the scramble. Thanks to everybody who helped out, uh, and we will be back tomorrow with that show about grammar. So sharpen up your usage. Like some other men do Like some other men do I'm Kyone Wolf, and I'd like to thank my acting inspirations, John Tramolto, Brad Spilt, Meryl Sturp, Matt Mahogany, and of course, Helen DeGeneres. Thank you so much. Kids, go to bed.